Biathlon is a unique Olympic event. It challenges participants with opposing athletic endeavors in a singular competition. It combines the heart-pumping aerobic aspects of cross-country skiing matched with the intense focus of precision marksmanship. Two diametrically opposing forces testing every ounce of physical and mental strength of athletes. Welcome to Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly, and I'm proud to bring you regular insights into this fascinating sport. I've always wondered about what inspires athletes to get into their sport, and even more so, what motivates them to continue in their quest to be the best at what they do. Claire Egan was 25 when she first took up the marksmanship aspect of biathlon. In a short time, she established herself as part of the heartbeat of the U.S. biathlon team. Today at 33, she continues to be inspired towards lofty goals. Today we'll take you to the lakes and forests of eastern Finland, where the BMW-IBU World Cup Biathlon Tour is just beginning for an insightful chat with one of the best biathletes in the world, Claire Egan. Coming to us from the Finnish village of Kantialate for the start of the IBU World Cup Biathlon Tour, Claire Egan. And Claire, welcome to Heartbeat. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, you are embarking on an interesting journey. Uh, What has life been like in Kantialate this past few days? Well, in some ways, it's been the most normal thing I've done all year that that's uh, basically how I would sum up my my experience on the biathlon course, but in other ways, definitely different. You know, sometimes I don't even recognize people I'm seeing for the first time in several months because everyone's masked up, and we're, you know, I had a COVID test the morning before my race, and so there's definitely a layer of of newness um, and difference, but there's also some things that are exactly the same and that's refreshing. I want to talk first a little bit about the village itself and then we'll move on into the COVID protocols that the International Biathlon Union has put in place to get this tour actually up and going here in November. Uh, But you've been to Contialati before. I believe it was the first world championship site that you attended in 2015. What is the village like itself? And this time of year with very limited daylight, What's the feeling and what's the, the vibe being there in Contialate right now? It's actually a bigger town than you might imagine. So the town where our hotel is is actually called Joensu, and it's in eastern Finland near the Russian border. There's a big river that runs through the middle of it, and it's a decent-sized city. There's a university here. There's a busy town square, um, lots of big buildings and apartments where people live. And so it's more bustling than a lot of the places that we stay that are, you know, more in the mountain town category. Um, So this real, it feels like a real city. Whereas the venue, um, which is in Contiolati, that's about 20 minutes from here. And um, that's basically, you know, a, a biathlon venue on a big lake and feels much more remote Um, it is true that there's not a lot of daylight right now and the daylight that we do have tends to be almost always gray. So I'm taking a double dose of my vitamin D supplement and trying to get outside 
whenever I can during that daylight to take advantage of it. Sports organizations across the world have been trying all sorts of different methodologies to safely bring athletes back to competition. The International Biathlon Union has put together a modified schedule going into this season. I know that this is only the first event, but do you have a sense of how the protocols are working and has it given you a sense of some comfort to compete there safely? Yes, um, I I think that the IBU, the International Bathon Union, has done a tremendous amount of work and um, you know, just gone above and beyond to do everything they can to make this event possible. So basically every event participant, whether that's an athlete, a coach, an official, um, media personnel, etc., they need to take a COVID test before they arrive um, or have a negative test before they arrive. I think it's within 72 hours of arrival. And then once you arrive on site, you get tested right away again. And then once that is negative, then you can, you know, you have your accreditation for the event and you can move around as normal within the event space. And that, and then you're also on a um, testing regimen every four or five days. So there's a lot of testing involved. There's also rules in place. For example, mask wearing is required um, everywhere other than when you're you know, in your own personal hotel room or actively um, competing or training. So that was, I think, really new for a lot of people. Um, certain countries definitely have less mask wearing protocols, just like in the US. I think it's more common in some states than in others. Uh, living in New York State, it was something I was already really used to. So that hasn't been um, too much of a destruction for me. Um, and, you know, and we're also basically strongly discouraged from making any um, outing other than you know, to get something essential, um, and certainly no visits to restaurants, pubs, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, those are kind of the basic things that the IBU's done to be able to make this event happen. I know that biathlon, like many other sports, is a family. You know these other athletes and coaches from nations from around the world. Uh, as you are encountering your friends who you haven't seen for eight or nine months now, are you able to recognize them uh, with their masks? And how is the social interaction between the teams? <laughs> well, I have had already a couple experiences where I did not recognize someone right away. So that is for sure happening. Um, and it, you know, just like when you see a friend or a family member in the U S that you haven't seen in a long time, you maybe have that instinct to give them a hug. And, and of course that's not possible here either. Um, but I think the social interaction is, it's getting more and more normal. Um, I don't want to say relaxed. I mean, we're still keeping the distance and we're always wearing masks, but we're just learning to interact you know when we see each other on the in the warm-up zone or um in the hallway of the hotel it's you know we're we're getting used to seeing each other again and that feels really nice 
How did it feel, Claire, when you stepped into the starting gate for the first time and you you pushed out and all of a sudden you knew our season is actually underway? I was really uh, enthusiastic to get going because, as I mentioned, it's one of the most normal things I've done all year. Um, my sports psychologist who's um, working for the U.S. Olympic Committee, Sean McCann, he put that idea into my head um, recently that once I get out on course, it's going to be exactly the same as it always has been. I mean, the, the sport hasn't changed at all. Um, and that really is true. So that felt really good to, to go out and do what I've been training for and have it be exactly the same as it always has been. Let's go back to last March, and we'll trace your spring, summer, and fall up to this point. I know that the World Cup tour was actually in Cantilate in mid-March last year when all of a sudden uh, teams had to had to leave because of the pandemic. You had decided to skip that event and left after Novemesto. What was your March like, even though you didn't have to make that quick exit, uh, as many athletes did, you still faced some immediate quarantine situations last spring. And how did that work for you last March? Well, I the reason I chose to skip the final World Cup last year, which was in Contiolati, was because I was sick. Um, I didn't think it was COVID, but um, it was sort of an upper respiratory illness and I, it was the second time I had been sick and it was just, it was time for me to go home. Um, as much as I, I really hated to make that choice, um, because I cherish every opportunity I get to race on a world cup. Um, but I, I flew home and, um, to Lake Placid, New York and, a couple days after I got home, I developed a fever. And at that point I knew that I really needed to go get tested, um, you know, for my sake, but also for my boyfriend's sake with whom I share an apartment. Um, and so I went and I got tested and, um, pretty quickly, I think within a day or two, I found out that I was, um, positive for influenza B, which was good news because it, meant almost certainly that I would be negative for COVID, but um, I didn't get my COVID test result back for a week. And in that week, um, the New York State Department of Health quarantined me and also um, removed my boyfriend from our apartment and put him up in a motel and he was quarantined there. So we were we were both quite strictly quarantined. I mean, we had people from the health department checking once a day uh, on us in person to make sure we were inside. So it was not the homecoming that I was uh, hoping for to be, you know, reunited with my boyfriend after so long uh, apart. And um, I ended up being indoors for those full 14 days of, of that quarantine, um, even though I was negative. So it was a tough, um, a tough way to come back, but at least, you know, I didn't have COVID, didn't infect anyone with COVID and that's what, that's what matters. Um, but that, yeah, that was the start to my pandemic. Now I know athletes oftentimes like to take a little bit of downtime in the spring, but you're all of a sudden back in March and April, you're faced with a situation where you really don't know what your summer training is going to be like. That's definitely true. And, and it wasn't only 
that I didn't know what my training was going to be like, I also didn't know what the 2020-21 season would look like. And, and, you know, in some ways we still don't. It's a question mark all the time. Um, but I think that, you know, as a 33-year-old athlete, um, I certainly do not view this year as a building year or a training year. You know, every year I have left in the sport is a really important competition year for me. And so it was definitely a question of whether or not to continue um, this spring. You know, do I want to dedicate another year of my life to, to training for something that I don't even know will happen? Um, so that, I think that was the biggest question on my mind in those months. What were some of the decision points for you, Claire, in making that call? Because I know it's challenging for athletes who are a little bit older in their sport as to make that commitment and, and stick around. But what were those points that really said to you, I still have work to do here? Well, I think that what you just said is one of them, that I still have work to do here. Um, I, I was coming off a tough season um, in terms of my skiing, but I had increased my shooting percentage to a point that I was really pleased with. And, and, my, and the previous year I had skied really well. And I just, I was looking at those two things and saying, okay, if I can pair the shooting I did this year with the skiing I did last year, I can be one of the top athletes in the world. And that's an inspiring thing. Um, and so I knew that I still have more to give to the sport and that was part of it. Um, it was also not a super hot time to be entering the job market. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, that also played a role. Um, but, you know, I guess I just, I am, I'm hopeful that when it's time for me to be done, I'll, I'll know it's time for me to be done. And I, I didn't quite, I wasn't quite at that point last spring. And so um, I guess that, and then paired with the confidence that I had and continue to have in the International Biathlon Union to make sport possible, um, I decided to go ahead with my training this year. And what was your spring like? Once you'd made that decision, what was your spring like and what were the next steps in, in you putting together a training plan that would lead you up to the season? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I will say it, it. I didn't make that decision right away. I mean, I really didn't make it till the beginning of June. So there was some time in there in April and May when I was, I think, like many people, people in the world and people in America just kind of going day to day and um, trying to do what I could to be happy and healthy and safe. Um, but I, you know, once, once June came around, I started working with my coach, Armin Elkenthaler, who, who lives in Italy. Uh, so we had to do some long distance coaching this year um, to, to figure out ways that we could adapt to the rules and regulations of New York State uh, and, the you know, the reality of this pandemic to make training possible again. And what did you set up in, in I think you trained, your base was in Lake Placid where you live, mm -hmm. uh, and a few other athletes joined you there. How did you establish that impr impromptu maybe is, is, I don't know if that's the right word, but how did you establish that that camp and that structure without having your coaches there and having to deal with them remotely. How did that work out this summer? Um, well, some of, we, we had to make, of course, some kinds of adaptations, but 
one thing that we are really, really um, fortunate to be able to do in biathlon is do our, is train outside and use the great outdoors as our training environment. I mean, we don't need to be in a basketball court. You know, we we can hike in the mountains and road bike and run and roller ski um, and do pretty much all of the things that we need to do outside. Um, we we were not able to use our shooting range, which is outside until the middle of June. So that was, we were a little bit delayed there. Um, and of course we could not get into an indoor gym um, till much later. So we, we had to be a little creative there, but we were able to move some gym equipment from the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid to our shooting range facility, which is covered, you know, it's not, doesn't have walls, but it's covered by a roof. So, um, that was a, you know, an okay place to lift and to have store some equipment. Um, so we were really able to, to do all of our summer training, um, even despite the pandemic, it just was, was different in the fact that we, you know, I didn't see my coach, um, until later and, and we didn't have any organized camps, um, until October. Um, I did have a couple of teammates who also live in Lake Placid. So Maddie Fanoff and Chloe Levins, um, both were based in Lake Placid and we did a lot of training together this summer, um, but we didn't have any full, full team camps until October. So that, those were the, the main differences. It was interesting to see without those official team camps, which we're, we're just impractical given all of the circumstances to bring everybody together. But to look at the kind of bubbles that grew up in Lake Placid and at the same time over in Craftsbury uh, mm-hmm. in Vermont, where athletes were able to train together uh, using their creativity, but also kind of the pact that everybody made that, listen, we're in this together and we're going to follow the rules and we're going to train safely. Uh, it really did make a difference for the athletes this summer, didn't it? Yeah, Definitely. So as you moved into the fall, I know that uh, you had a, a real desire to get back together with your coach and, and to, to start some training uh, in a different locale. Uh, you were able to successfully figure out a way to get over to Europe and to do some training there. How did that program work out for you and, and, and where were the bases that you were able to operate out of? Uh, yeah, so in, I guess it was around August, I, I sort of was starting to realize that we were not going to be able to, I wasn't sure if we were going to be able to have any team camps. Um, and I, and, and eventually we did have one in October, but even then our European coaches weren't able to come. So it was just the athletes getting together. And I guess in August, I sort of started to see the writing on the wall that if I didn't somehow get over to Europe that I just would not be seeing my coach for the whole training period. And that was something that I, um, I I didn't really accept, you know, I wanted to avoid that at all costs. So, um, I am a member of the international biathlon unions executive board. I serve as the athlete representative on that board. And we had a board meeting in September and, um, Germany has explicit exceptions for travel for Americans who serve, um, you know, who work for international organizations. So I was able to get into Europe 
thanks to my participation in the IBU um, board meeting in September. And, um, and, there, and there are also some exceptions for, for professional athletes. And so that sort of combination of things allowed me to travel to Europe. And um, I stayed in Antolz, Italy, which is where my coach Armin lives and where there's a world-class biathlon facility that hosts a World Cup annually. Um, I stayed there for three weeks and I had a, I, I had a great experience um, just an excellent, really productive camp training with Armin. Um, and also I had some great training partners. Um, I, I trained with a Finnish athlete, Mari Ader, as well as some Italian, um, mostly younger junior athletes, and also the Estonian women's national team. They were all in, in Antold's training while I was there. Um, and that, and that, was it just made a big difference to have some of those training partners um, because relative to my teammates, Maddie and Chloe in Lake Placid, I'm the stronger skier and they're both really strong shooters, especially in terms of shooting speed. So where they were really pushing me on the range, I was pushing them in skiing, but I didn't have someone in Lake Placid who could push me on skis. And, and Mari really helped me with that as did the Estonian women. So that was a wonderful opportunity and I also felt like I, all of these things that I'd been working on on my own in Lake Placid, especially in terms of shooting, and, and maybe I was kind of banging my head against the wall and had had a lot of time to think about it on my own. As soon as I got to Antolz and I had my coach there in person, you know, able to see me shooting and watch what was going on, I just felt like we made um, a couple really important changes and improvements already within the first few days that then I got to put into really put into place and solidify over the next three weeks. So that was great. And then, um, the last five days I was there, we drove up to Ramsau, Austria, where our men's head coach lives, Vegar. And we were able to actually ski on the Dachstein glacier on snow there, which was tremendous. I've never uh, skied, you know, outside in the summer like that on a, on a glacier. So um, that was another, another highlight. And then I went to my meeting and then I got a last minute invitation to a roller ski biathlon competition in Wiesbaden, Germany. Um, you know, I think it was on a Tuesday and the event was on a Sunday. Someone, someone else was injured and couldn't make it. And I was so tired from the training camp, but I thought, well, this will be a great opportunity to practice everything that I've worked on in this camp. Um, and so I went up there and I actually came away with a podium finish and some prize money. And so it was the, the, you know, the icing on the cake of that great training camp. Nice way to end the trip, huh? Yep. Ramsau is a beautiful place, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's spectacular. You go to, actually, you go to some pretty cool places, don't you? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm very, very fortunate. Baffon takes me to a lot of wonderful places. Claire, let's go back in time and talk about growing up in Maine. Uh, you, I believe, are from Cape Elizabeth. And talk us through your athletic background in Maine and ultimately what led you to biathlon. Okay. Um, I, yes, you're right. I'm from Cape Elizabeth, Maine. I started my athletic career as a runner. Um, I think from a, my parents would probably tell you from a very early age, I was running maybe more than they would have liked. 
and I started doing a summer track program, I think when I was eight or nine. I did a ton of other sports, you know, from A to Z, but I I fell in love with running um, and did a lot of track and cross country through middle school. I actually only started cross country skiing in seventh grade. Um, and that was sort of a natural progression, I think, from my cross country running team. A lot of my friends who did cross country running in the fall did cross country skiing in the winter. So I sort of followed my friends into that. And I competed throughout high school for my high school team, Cape Elizabeth High School. And when I had the decision to um, ski in college or not, I was really on the fence because if you ski in college, it really sort of limits your college choices, um, or, or so I thought. I mean, I was thinking NCAA skiing, and there's just not very many schools that have that. Um, and I ended up going to Wellesley College, which is in Wellesley, Mass., just outside of Boston, and it's not a member of the NCAA ski league and I ran cross country and track at Wellesley division three and I actually started a cross country ski club um, Wellesley is very conveniently located just about four miles from Weston ski track which is a golf course in the summer and a cross country ski location in the winter and um, I was able to start this club that was part of the USCSA, which is the uh, U.S. Collegiate Ski and Snowboard Association, and it's it the USCSA basically fills the gap of where NCAA Division Three skiing would be if it existed, but it doesn't exist. There's only Division One, so you're either if you're skiing NCAA in college, it's a really high level, really big commitment. Um, USCSA sort of offers this more division three like commitment level um, and competition level. And there's a ton of schools that participate in that. So I was, I always uh, like to tell people about the USCSA. I think somehow a lot of people, you know, they miss it on their radar, but it's a, just a wonderful opportunity to, to ski and snowboard or downhill ski or whatever in college um, that a lot of people don't know about. So um, I got my club going, and I think, I, I mean, I really did more coaching than skiing on that club, but um, it was really fun, and it's a legacy I'm really proud of. There were 40 people on the Wellesley ski team last winter, so um, yeah, I think that's great. And I, I guess my, my senior year at Wellesley, I was sort of missing the high-level competition that I had done towards the end of my high school career. And I jumped into some Division I races, and I really surprised myself by qualifying for the NCAA National Championship as a guest skier. And, um, you know, that was kind of coming from this club program where I was the coach, you know. And so I think from there I thought, this is something that I'm good at. I love doing it, and I'd really like to have more opportunities to be on a, a higher-level team and be coached. So from there I... Um, I went to the University of New Hampshire as a graduate student, and since I had spent my whole junior year abroad at Wellesley, I had an extra year of NCAA eligibility remaining, and I spent that at UNH. Um, I actually ran track and cross country and also skied for them, Division One, And that was my stepping stone to the Craftsbury Green Racing Project in Vermont, which you mentioned. 
I lived in Craftsbury for about four years. I was a member of their cross-country ski team. And it was during that time, um, and now I'm getting up into my mid-20s, that I learned about biathlon and started to get involved. Um, Some names, which our listeners will surely know, Susan Dunkley and Hannah Dreisigacker, were both and are both still um, based in Craftsbury. And I did a lot of training with them in the summer for cross-country skiing, but then they would go off in the winter and do biathlon and and they had great success. You know, I saw them going to World Cups and going to the Olympics and and I thought, hey, you know, if if Susan can do that and Hannah can do that, I can do that too. And so just like I had followed my friends from cross-country skiing to or running to skiing in middle school, I followed my friends, Hannah and Susan, from skiing to biathlon um, when I was 26. Um, so Algis Shalma, who's a, a Lithuanian um, Olympic gold medalist in biathlon, he works for U.S. Biathlon as a um, junior development coach. And although I was definitely not a junior, he offered to coach me a little bit here and there. And so I he was my first biathlon coach and taught me a lot of the really important basics that I still rely on today. Um, and that... And then, you know, after that first year working with him a little bit in Craftsbury, I was invited to participate more with national team stuff in Lake Placid. And I sort of eventually moved from from Craftsbury to Lake Placid. And I eventually made my way um, from being a full-time cross-country skier to a full-time biathlete and, you know, from doing U.S. cross-country super tours and national championships to biathlon World Cups and eventually the Olympics. Claire, how old were you when you first picked up a rifle and started to shoot? You know, I, I, I think I was, I, I guess I was 25, and then I was 26 when I, like, did my first competitions. And it was 2015 when I did my World Cup debut. So by that point, I was you know, 28, if I'm doing the math correctly. Yeah. But you were a 25-year-old junior then, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, I, what's funny is that I was 25 or 26, and I was I went to a couple camps with Algus, and there was a 15-year-old named Chloe Levins there at those camps, and now we're still, you know, now we're training together as, um, you know, as senior-level athletes, so that's really fun. We had fun talking to Chloe a few months back. She was on the Heartbeat podcast. Yeah. But, by the way, yep. do, you, do you ever do you ever golf with her? <laughs> no, no, I no, <laughs> I can't. That's pro- probably the right call. Uh, yeah. you, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by how athletes make their way into biathlon. It's 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 a lot different than there's so many different pathways in. But you had a great experience a, as an aerobic athlete. You'd been a mm-hmm. cross country runner, cross country skier. But now you have to do something a little bit different with the the shooting. And you, really I wouldn't say a little man- bit, Tom. It's a lot different. <laughs> totally different. But, but, and, and and I think a lot of people think about just the aspect of shooting itself and the marksmanship, but the physiological things that you need to do, the mental things that you need to do to make sure your body can remain still. How did you learn that? Uh, With a lot of good coaching and a lot of time. I mean, as I said before, I'm 33 now, so it's, 
Um, you know, it, it didn't happen overnight. Um, I, I do think you're right. Both the physical skills and the psychological skills, um, took a lot of time because they're totally different than anything I'd ever done before. Um, so I'm, I still feel that every year my, my skills in shooting improve and you can just see that on my shooting statistics year after year. Um, that's very clear. So my skills are definitely still improving. Um, and I've had a lot, I've worked really hard, I have to say on the, on both parts. Um, but definitely also on the psychological components and I'm very grateful for my sports psychologist, uh, Sean McCann for, for all of his help. Um, because I don't think I could, I know that I couldn't do it or have, you know, have had the successes that I've had without, his help. Um, it's just, it's so different uh, and it's so challenging. <laughs> you you are also coming into this in a period of U.S. biathlon's history that's uh, certainly one of great stature, and you you're a contributor to to that history. Thank you. What what is your sense of this point in time for U.S. biathlon with the results that have been achieved by athletes in the last few years? the young athletes coming up, uh, where do you see things going for the organization in America? Well, I think it will only go up. Um, I mean, we've set a high bar, but it's always going up. And I think our, you know, our junior athletes see that and you can already see if, for example, our, our junior boys are now competing sometimes with our senior athletes. So, I, I just think it's one athlete's always helping another athlete. I mean, I look at what Susan has done and how it helped me do what I've done, and hopefully what I do can help somebody else do even better. Um, so I, I just think that's how it works. Let's talk about the various leadership roles you've played. It was fascinating to hear about your experience at Wellesley College, where if there's not a team, I'm going to go out and I'm going to start <laughs> yeah. when I'm going to coach it. But but you've also stepped forward to be a representative to the IBU's executive board representing the athletes. What motivated you to take on that additional role? It's it, it's pretty interesting, actually. I. I didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. And then my, my previous coach basically handed me a piece of paper and said, you know, we think you would be good at this. You should run. And it was very last minute. I, it wasn't on my radar. And I, um, so I, you know, filled out the paperwork or whatever. And I, I actually never imagined that I would get elected because, um, I mean, at that time and still now I'm not the best biathlete. Um, but for sure at that time, I thought, I thought no one even knew my name, you know, and it's the other athletes who are voting. Um, but the, at that time that was 2018, the international Bathon union. And I think, you know, a lot of winter sport in general was really in the middle of a major crisis in terms of doping and sport, you know, all of this, um, doping from the Sochi Olympics, um, by the Russians had just been uncovered by the world anti-doping organization through their, um, McLaren investigation. And, and our, you know, our Federation, the IBU wasn't doing anything about it. They weren't reacting appropriately. Um, 
And I had been really outspoken about that. And I, you know, I ran for this position and I got the most votes by a lot. And it shocked me, but it made me realize that when I had been outspoken against doping, people actually had been listening and they really cared about it. Even if they didn't speak up for whatever reason, maybe they weren't really afforded that privilege by their own federation or they felt scared or they didn't speak English well enough or they thought they didn't speak English well enough for whatever reason. Um, But obviously um, the other athletes had heard me and I felt it was a really clear mandate that I should go forward and, and do whatever I can do on this board to um, try to improve our, the integrity of our sport. Um, And I'm, you know, we can get more into it, but I'm very happy to report that since then a, a lot has changed, major fundamental changes to the organization and, and the response to doping and other integrity issues. So it's um, been a, a, a great progress that I'm happy to be part of. Do you feel, Claire, as you look back, and particularly in the, in the last year or two since the IBU went through its transformation, that the IBU is indeed listening to athletes? Yes, I do. Um, since I was elected, um, the IBU has added a position on its board for an athlete representative. So that didn't exist before. So there was no commu- there was no listening to athletes that happened before because they weren't even in the room. Um, so now there's at least one athlete in the room, and and that makes a big difference. And I feel completely respected and heard by my board colleagues and by the IBU staff, particularly, um, you know, the, the people who are working there every day and um, who are responsible for things like antidoping and, and managing events and um, everything with our sport. So I, I really do. And I think that's, that's important. And then the integrity of the leadership is important. And that was what was missing before. And, you know, the old leadership is now gone because they were basically ousted by a police raid. And we have (laughs) new people, um, who are, who are actually guiding the organization in the right direction. So I, you know, I think with, with good leadership and with integrity, you can solve any problem. And I, I do feel like we're in a situation with IBU now where, where that is the case. Claire, let's talk about the Olympics. And in 2018 in Pyeongchang, you became an Olympian. I think a lot of people, when you, you, know, you think back, they, they have this lifelong goal of becoming an Olympian. Was that the case with you, or was this something that really evolved a little bit more later in life as you became more engaged in elite athletics? Uh, for me, it was definitely not a lifetime goal. Um, I thought it was... I didn't believe it was possible. I didn't even understand um, how people do that. or It was just totally out of my field of view um, until 2014, actually. And I participated in the biathlon trials in 2014. They were, you know, among my very first biathlon competitions that I ever did. But I was quite close to making the team. 
you know, I didn't make the team and I had, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was a fast skier and I was learning quickly and I almost did. Or I got close enough that I knew then and there, this is definitely possible for me and I'm going to do it in 2018. What was your experience like in Pyeongchang? Just the atmosphere and being with athletes from so many different sports and so many different cultures. Well, that was really, I think, one of the coolest parts of the whole experience for me. Um, I mean, doing the Biathlon World Cup is already so interesting with people from all over the world or, um, you know, different backgrounds. Um, but then to expand the event to so many other sports, um, it really brought in even more people. And I I really did enjoy that that aspect of it. And a lot of countries were maybe involved in other sports that aren't involved in biathlon. And um, yeah, I did enjoy that sort of global community aspect of the Olympics. I think it was my favorite part. We're going to talk about Beijing in just a minute, but I'm sure you have friends and colleagues and certainly you're aware of the athletes from Tokyo for the summer games that have had this one-year postponement. And uh, have, have you watched that whole situation and how they've had to adjust their whole training plan by an entire year? Yeah, um, definitely. I, I mean, in my role as an athlete representative, I also I represent biathlon um, on some phone calls with the um, International Olympic Committee Athletes Committee. They sort of have this network of, of different um, athlete sports leaders from around the world. And um, so I've been listening in on that decision process and, and that change since, you know, March or since it started to happen. Um, and it is, I mean, it's just interesting because of course some people are going to be delighted. People who are injured this year, you know, people who have COVID, whatever, there's people who are young and they know, oh, next year I'll be stronger or something like that. They get can get another year of training under their belt. There, you know, some people are are really delighted. And then there's this other set of people. Maybe you're in a sport like gymnastics where like you can't get older. <laughs> you know, they that that just that other one more year of training on your body is is um you know such a high risk for injury or or people who are um you know I know a cyclist who's you know very nearing the end of her career she's in her late 30s and to at that point you know to add one more year um is that's a huge decision for anybody um but perhaps especially for a woman um, who may be thinking about starting a family, like those things just, you know, that one more year, it starts to be a, a really dramatic decision. So I, I don't envy, you know, those people who are in, in those difficult decisions. And, and that's on top of, you know, just like you've said, the sort of practical aspects of, of, um, changing your training plan. Um, so, yeah, I think it's been a difficult decision for sure for a lot of people. In your case, you are literally 14, 15 months out from the Olympics in Beijing. No one's been on the venue yet. Are, do you think that you will get there? And is it important for you to be on the venue in advance of February 2022 in Beijing? I do not think 
we will get there. Um, the International Olympic Committee has canceled all of the TIST events, as far as I know, in all sports. So, um, you know, I won't be going there. Um, I believe that they're trying to offer some opportunities for individuals and, you know, for representatives of sports federations and maybe even teams to go to go check it out. And of course, there, you know, the IBU is very much involved in in certifying that everything's ready and and making sure that it's prepared to host such an event. Um, but but I will not be going there. I don't think. Claire, looking back now in your career in biathlon, your career in sport, what has biathlon and Olympic sport in particular? What has that really brought to your life as an athlete? Oh, that's a good question. Um, there's so many ways that I could answer this question. Um, I do think that one, one thing that I really cherish about my experience as an athlete is the opportunity it's given me to to travel internationally, to meet people from other countries and to be part of this global community. That's, it's such a privilege, um, to have these experiences and it's an honor to represent my country in these experiences. Um, I think since I was a child, I always envisioned some kind of career for myself in international relations, maybe as a diplomat or something like that. And I'm, you know, I'm not quite doing that, but there are definitely aspects of this job that I have as an athlete that feel like that, and those are some of my favorite things. Well, Clara, it's been great to talk to you. Uh, we're done with the heavy stuff. We'll get on to okay. some fun stuff. To, <laughs> that was a hard to, question. <laughs> well, that's the way we like to end it. So we're going to move on now to what I call on target, just a series of personal profile, lifestyle type questions. So no right or wrong answer here and just take this uh, uh, as a little bit of fun. And to kick it off, I believe, actually, I should ask you, how many languages do you speak, Claire? Um, I would say that I speak five languages and I study a couple, two or three others. And what, and what are the languages? Well, English is one of them. <laughs> um, English, French, Spanish, Italian, and German. All of those I can speak quite well, ranging from, you know, quite well to fluent. Um, and then I study Korean and Russian and Portuguese here and there. My Man, that's a pretty good compliment. So I have one question for you. Give me an example of a time that your knowledge of foreign language has gotten you out of a difficult situation. <laughs> okay. We will go to the Pyeongchang Olympics when we were um, leaving the country and at the airport. We were having some issues with our rifles, which it tends to be a um, you know, a, a an issue, a constant issue for biathletes. I mean, rifles and air travel just do not go well together. Um, but they were trying to confiscate various things from us, from our tools to rifle parts. And I was able to say, 
no, <laughs> we're not giving these to you. We are leaving now. <laughs> and uh, it worked. In Korean? Yes. If, don't job. ask me how to say that right now because I cannot remember. But at that time, I was able to say something along those lines. Good deal. You saved the day. Okay, next <laughs> one. E hopefully, this is an easy one. Your favorite thing about being a Maine native? Mm. Oh, it's not easy. I love everything about Maine. Um, my favorite thing about being a Maine native, I, I think just having spent so much of my life uh, on the ocean, seeing the ocean, smelling the ocean, feeling the ocean, that's something I'm, I, I think I'm very lucky for that. Cape Elizabeth is quite an amazing place. Mm-hmm. You went on an amazing journey this spring, camping and mountain biking. What was your most fun ride this spring on your new mountain bike? Oh, this will be, this will perhaps surprise people and I'm happy to share it. Yeah, so um, I, I flew to San Antonio this spring because I needed to drive my brother's car back to um, the Northeast. He's in the military and he was not able to leave. So I did this for him. And I bought my first mountain bike. And uh, as I was doing this solo trip uh, back from San Antonio, I was camping and riding my mountain bike around. And um, my favorite place was in Alabama. It was near Birmingham. And it's a state park. And I can't tell you the name of it right now, but it's um, a beautiful state park just outside of Birmingham. And it had great trails, um, this beautiful lake that I was able to jump in and have a swim in and perfect weather in May, um, really friendly people. So I had never been to Alabama and I had a, a great impression um, on that on that day on that bike ride. Very cool. Okay, your favorite biathlon venue. Oh, that's an easy one. Antolz um, in Italy is my favorite biathlon venue. It's been almost, that's one of my regular questions, and it's been almost universal. <laughs> yeah. to it's so. sunny every day. <laughs> I love it. Beautiful place. Okay, here's one. Do you have a favorite pandemic Netflix binge? I do not. I do not have Netflix, and I watch almost zero TV or movies. That's a great answer. And the last one, <laughs> this might be challenging for you too. In one word, what does Olympic sport mean to you? Glory. Glory. Very good. Claire Egan, thank you so much for joining us on Heartbeat. It's been fun to follow your career the last few years, and we wish you all the best of luck this season and up through Beijing. Thank you very much for having me, Thomas. It's been fun. Biathlon is a sport of precision, an ultimate test of athletes on snow. Claire, thank you for sharing your story with us today on Heartbeat. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us on Heartbeat, the U.S. Biathlon podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a short review and make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast channel. You'll find Heartbeat on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. From all of us at U.S. Biathlon, thanks for listening to Heartbeat.